continuing our series on the Gospels that we started last week. And I said last week that we would learn to the figure of John the Baptist uh, in his relationship to Jesus today, and we will. But I want to re-emphasize first the point that I made last week, which has got to be understood very clearly before we can have any understanding of what has actually happened in the uh, public appreciation or understanding of the life and the teachings of Jesus and how it has been transformed into a theological thing rather than the kind of event that it actually was. Uh, I mentioned last week, but I did not read, the quote from the book The History of Christianity, which I once published in St. Bonnie a number of years ago in connection with something else. Um, this is the quote in its entirety because it's important to remember that when Jesus was on earth and working, okay, and initiating people and teaching people and so forth, that it was not the Christ in glory of popular conception, but um, things went wrong. And they often went very wrong. And this is why, in fact, as we went into last week, Peter felt compelled to deny him three times while he was being taken. And this is an important part of the mission of all masters, this being triumph, this triumphing through being pushed down, we might say. Or as Johnson puts it, this is the scholar Paul Johnson writing in the first sentence, then too there was the central paradox that the mission had to be vindicated by its failure. As Master Kripal quoted many times from one of the past masters, Satguru loses and lets the world win. A great many people found Jesus impossible to accept or follow. He was repudiated by his family, at least for a time. His native district did not accept him. There were certain towns when his teaching, where his teaching made no impact. In some places he could not work miracles. In others they caused little stir or were soon forgotten. He made many enemies and at all times there were a large number of people who ridiculed his claims and simply brushed aside his religious ideas. All of this is based very squarely on the gospel record. I need not mention. He could assemble a crowd of supporters, but it was always just as easy to collect a mob against him. His refusal to make his claims explicit and unambiguous was resented, and not only by his enemies. His followers were never wholly in his confidence, and some of them had mixed feelings from time to time about the whole enterprise. What had they involved themselves in? There is a hint that Judas's betrayal may have been motivated less by greed, an easy and unconvincing apostolic smear, than by shock at the sudden fear he might be serving an enemy of religion. And lest, lest we think that this process, okay, this living, breathing, often failing mission of a master, which is transformed after his death into something that's um, absolutely, well, in the term that's often used, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, um, in which everything is perfect, right, and 
absolutely different from anything that could possibly happen nowadays. And therefore, any living person who claims to be doing the same thing or who we have reason to believe is doing the same thing can be easily put down. Uh, the same process has repeated itself many, many times. This is a, a um, quote from a book that was written and published under the authority of Master Kripal Singh during his lifetime in connection with the controversy in Agra in which um, a religion was set up in the name of Swamiji Maharaj um, proclaiming him to be the new savior as I will read something of the stress on a living master still remained this was up until 1949 there were four successors to Swamiji according to that group and it was finally smothered in 1949 with the death of Babuji Maharaj and a period of spiritual interregnum was proclaimed the church came at last fully into its own claiming to baptize in the name of a past savior they, they were initiating in the name of the past master and promising salvation through a messiah who was to appear again a master who was promised to be coming sometime in the future meanwhile offering a few drops of well water and some sods of earth as a substitute for his flesh and blood freed of the necessity of a living guru it could finally ensure its permanence and secure its position by forging out of the non-partisan and Catholic teachings of its official founders the steel frame of a new religion and a new creed with its own particular doctrines and its own peculiar dogmas. This entire process has been accomplished at Swamibad with remarkable speed and has needed not even a century for its fulfillment. And those of us Many of us have seen since the death of Kripal Singh the same tendency. Uh, there are among the followers of Kripal Singh, there are many who will maintain that Kripal Singh was the, the greatest master who ever came, that he left no successor, that you can be initiated in his name even though he has left the body, and they will do that for you. And that uh, in some cases it will be maintained that uh, at some future time, it varies greatly, another master will come um, who will be absolutely different than any master who is walking on the earth today. So this tendency continues. It's always there. It's a, it's a, it appears to be a human way of coping with the heavy demands that association with a saint places on us. Because when we are moving in the company of a real saint, and this the gospel records bear this out as much as anything else, uh, as well as our own experience. Most of us here have had this experience. Um, we know that it's not an easy thing. When Kent spoke about um, the South America trip a number of years ago, after in the first during the first tour, he gave his experiences. He mentioned during that time he was in the Master's company a lot. And the difference when you are traveling with the Master or, or working with him closely um, it's the difference is like coming in to the fireplace on a cold day and warming yourself going out again as compared with being there, staying there until you get very, very hot. Because the Master does demand that we live up to our own 
highest potential at all times. It's an unspoken demand that he makes of us. And therefore, when he leaves the body, I think that with many, there is a sense of relief that uh, now you can relax a bit. And uh, even though um, maybe a hard thing to say, I think that history shows that it, it does happen over and over and over again. Because every religion in the world, not just Christianity, but every religion is based, uh, has come about in this way. Very few. In fact, no religion has maintained as its central place the esoteric teachings. Uh, some of them have allowed them to remain within the body of that religion in one way or another. In most cases, the institutional religion has really worked hard to prevent the esoteric teachings from existing. And we will see uh, how that has worked in the case of Christianity as we proceed. Okay. Now, in the Gospel of John, which we were taking as our base, um, John the Baptist is presented as primarily as Jesus' forerunner, although it does not say why a forerunner was necessary except as a fulfillment of prophecy. And I should also admit, last week I talked something about the various Gospels, including John, and how they came about and how they related to each other historically and spiritually. And I should make it plain that um, while the Gospels are, I think, basically reliable, if we read them with a correct understanding of the of the basic uh, thing that was happening, which they're describing, um, all of them have been edited. None of them exist in its original form. In some cases, the editing may have been uh, an editing up. That is, it may have been a spiritual editing. In other cases, it may have been an editing down. That is, the level of understanding has been lowered. And we can see evidences of this as we go along. The Gospel of John has been edited several times, and uh, you know it's not possible to recreate exactly uh, the original words of the original writer, and nor is it always possible to tell um, you know, where the editor is coming from, what is his particular point of view. Sometimes it's possible to tell. But these are the reasons why, of course, all the masters, including Jesus, have laid stress on the importance of associating with the real thing, not relying on books which, after all, are subject to all kinds of alterations, uh, both deliberate and accidental. So, the section on the first time that John is mentioned in the Gospel of John is verses 6 through uh, 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And it is obviously important for the writer of this section that we not confuse John with Jesus. And the reason that this is important and that we don't understand fully from the Gospels, although the, the hints are there, is that John was a religious teacher in his own right. He was a very um, powerful, very popular one who probably was far more famous in his day than Jesus was. I realize that the, the Gospels do not make that clear, but they don't make it clear for a reason. And the reason is that they want very badly to um, to prove that Jesus was greater. 
which does not mean that he was not greater, but it means that the people who wrote it were afraid that uh, uh, that the mere fact of it might not be enough. And therefore, um, they bend over backwards to prove this. And one of the reasons we know that John was probably more famous than Jesus is that he is mentioned in, in extra-biblical records, and Jesus is not. In no place, in no contemporary uh, ref- reference record, is any reference made to Jesus at all. But John the Baptist is quite well known. He's referred to in Josephus' description of the times. And we know that disciples of his remained in the Middle East at least until the 10th century. Now, that is really a kind of an interesting fact, that he did found a sect, if you want to call it a sect or whatever, which continued to have disciples for over a thousand years. And whether or not there were uh, living gurus connected with that sect, I don't know. There's not much known about it. But um, in any case, that is the the main um, thrust of the Gospel of John, is that John the Baptist was Jesus' forerunner. Now, it does appear clear that John was less than Jesus uh, in stature, and yet at the same time he was his guru. And I will explain this as we go along. Um, John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received in grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. This is again a reference to the same uh, dichotomy which we studied in the Anurag Saga. The comparison between law and love, between negative and positive, although it would be a gross oversimplification to say that uh, the entire revelation given out by Moses was of the negative, because that isn't true, as Jesus himself pointed out many, many times in the course of the gospel. But the law that was being followed in relation to that law was definitely um, the kind of thing that Sanchi was talking about in the discourse last Sunday. Uh, in which he told that story of Lord Krishna and the soldier king uh, who was was told to kill his son and uh, feed him his heart or something. Very unpleasant story. And uh, But if he felt any sadness, then the sacrifice would be, would be worthless, would not be possible, would not be accepted. So he did do it, and yet while they were carving up his son, his wife became sad and cried and that rendered it useless. And the point is that this is what the law is like, that um, if we think that we can obey the law, pure and simple, um, then we are in the same position as that king and his wife, because we're going to flub up somewhere along the line. And it can't be done. And that is why it's not a question of rightness or wrongness, it's a question of if anything is ever going to save us, it has to be done by grace, because we just aren't capable of doing what the negative power has laid down we have to do in order to measure up. And uh, that is why this emphasis is is laid here. Now, now, John is saying this. This is presented as a statement by John, who is often considered the last of the great Jewish prophets. This was perhaps the way he appeared to his contemporaries. And as we will see, he was widely considered to be the reincarnation of Elijah. And in fact, 
Jesus confirmed that he was that. Uh, we'll see in a few minutes. And he continues, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And here, uh, the reference is to the absolute God, Anami Radhaswami, who is nameless, who is never seen by anyone, because he cannot be, although he can be reached in the fullness of time by the Paramsas, and the only begotten Son, which is the Word, as the beginning of the chapter is made plain. In other words, to read this as saying that there is only one physical human being who is the only begotten Son is a great mistake. The verse makes very plain that the only begotten Son, and this comes right after the, the 14 verses on the Word, which we have read, which is in the bosom of the Father. In other words, the Son, as he existed before physical incarnation in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. This is the function of the Word, as the Gospel has made plain, is to declare the Absolute. It is through the Word, the light and the sound, and through the Word made flesh, that is a part of it too, it's all together, that we can find out what the absolute God is like, without a doubt. And this is, and that is the way that we do it. So, this is the record of John. When the Jews, and throughout the Gospel of John also, the word Jews is used to mean the Jewish leaders, usually the Sadducees, who were the temple uh, hierarchy in control of the temple ritual, and occasionally the Pharisees, who were the dominant uh, theological party among the people. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elijah? And he saith, I am not. You will note that uh, they take it for granted that he could be Elijah. And this is an important thing to realize that underlying the Gospels and as part of Judaism of this time was a belief in the transmigration of souls. Not everyone realizes that and it is one of the things that has been edited out of scripture as we have it today. But the fact is that it was there and it was it pervades the Gospels and it is, it is uh, not talked about much because nobody felt it necessary to talk about it much. But it's, it comes up a lot of different times and if, if we realize that people all of the people in the Gospels, the Pharisees, uh, the disciples of Christ, and so forth, all of them accepted the idea of reincarnation as a basic starting point, then many things like this verse become clear. Because how could he be Elijah if, if Elijah couldn't be reincarnated as him? And later on, Jesus refers to this again very specifically and says that he is Elijah. One of the reasons that the question came up is because in the book of Malachi, in the Old Testament, the prophecy was made, um, the very last verse of the Old Testament in the Christian Bible, although not in the Jewish Bible, that, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So this prophecy was taken very seriously and people were worried. If Elijah was coming, uh, then this meant that something else was coming soon. Maybe you might 
look forward to it or not, depending on where your conscience was at, I suppose. Uh, and there had been no prophet in Israel for several hundred years. The scripture had been closed, had been declared closed, the canon of scripture had been declared closed about 400 B.C. And uh, no prophet had appeared since that time. So John was, was quite an important figure in his day. Now he denies here that he is Elijah, but that may be taken either as his humility in the same way that if you ask a master, if he is a master, he will say no, or it is possible that he was not fully aware of his own nature, because it does seem clear that he was not a complete master. (coughs) Then said they unto him, Who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. And they asked him and said unto him, Why baptizest thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elijah, neither that prophet? And the word Christ here, of course, is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah, Mashiach in the original, which means anointed. And one thing that we should know is that the word Messiah, as applied in the Old Testament, and it's used a lot in the Old Testament, does not necessarily apply to one person. It's a very interesting point. It means the originally refers to the kings who were anointed with oil, and they were considered to be um, chosen by God in doing his work, David, Solomon, and so forth. And very similar to the words... Um, Maharaj from Sanskrit and Shanshah from the Persian, it came to be applied to holy people, saints. And uh, ultimately, in the fullness of time, the belief came to be that there would be one Messiah who would come and he would save Israel from the captivity that it was under, first under Alexander the Great's successors and then under Rome. Uh, and before that, under the... Um, Babylonians and so forth. But the word is very, it by no means, as used in the Old Testament, it is by no means uh, a singular word. It does not mean just one person. John answered them saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latchet I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. Um, it would be helpful to see what the Gospel of Matthew says on the same subject, because more is, is said about John there, and the relationship between John and Jesus has gone into more. For one thing, we learned that his food was locusts and wild honey. Okay, And this is the, the thing now. Everyone knows that John the Baptist ate locusts. Um, someone has pointed out that the difficulties involved in catching locusts is not very, uh, doesn't seem very logical. But in fact, this appears to be a mistranslation. And there is a, we'll go into this question of vegetarianism, not this week, but a little later. But just at this point, in connection with John the Baptist, there is a very ancient gospel called the Gospel of the Ebionites, which exists only in fragment form. 
And it, the reason it exists in fragment form is because before it was suppressed, a church um, apologist, uh, theologian, whatever you want to call it, there's a special word that I forget, a, a, um, a man who who finds fault with all the things that are against what he thinks and explains how they're wrong, uh, named Epiphanius, wrote a treatise on various false, what he called false gospels. And in that, he quotes from this gospel of the Ebionites and explains how they're wrong. Later on, when Constantine became uh, a Christian and the Roman Empire was Christianized and the church, what we call the church, retained, be, got secular power, um, all of these gospels were stamped out. They were burned, suppressed, and most of the people who followed them were uh, not at first killed, that was only later, but they were um, pushed around and forbidden to meet and so forth. So it got very heavy. But before that time, before the church had the power to do that, there really was a very wide assortment of understandings of what Jesus was saying. And the Ebionites were vegetarians. And they, their gospel, which is very old, uh, and apparently is the original, or based on the original of the Gospel of Matthew, because it was written in Aramaic, uh, they say this, John was baptizing, and there went out unto him Pharisees, and were baptized in all Jerusalem. And John had raiment of camel's hair, and a leathern girdle about his loins. And his food, it saith, was wild honey, whereof the taste is the taste of manna, as a cake dipped in oil. This is a, now so far has been supposedly quoted by Epiphanius, writing 300 years after the event, from the Gospel. Then he adds his own comment, that forsooth they may pervert the word of truth into a lie, and for locusts put a cake dipped in honey. And then there's a comment by the editor of the modern version, who says, these Ebionites were vegetarians and objected to the idea of eating locusts. A locust in Greek is akris, and the word they used for cake is enkris, so the change is slight. We shall meet with this tendency again, he says. Now, I would like to point out, when I first read this, I mean, it's also just as easy to see that the change could just as easily have taken place the other way. And you'll be interested to learn that the Ebionites were the... so incredible, some of these things that, that you find out by hunting around backwards, so to speak. The Ebionites were the original Jewish disciples of Jesus. That is what they call themselves, the Ebionim, means the poor ones. And in the Gospel, when there are references to the poor, the word, the, the original Aramaic word was Ebionim. Uh, and, and you see, they were vegetarians. So, um, later on it came to be thought that there was a heretic named Ebion who had founded the sect. And at the time that Epiphanius was writing, he probably thought this. But modern scholarship has shown that this, that no Ebion ever existed and that the Ebionites were the original, the descendants of the original disciples of Jesus that he made during his lifetime. And their gospel, which is one of the oldest of all, although all we have of it is a few paragraphs, um, which I've quoted here, most of them, uh, is older and undoubtedly more accurate than the later ones. So there is excellent reason to believe that both John the Baptist 
and Jesus were vegetarians, despite uh, the opinion of many to the contrary. In any case, locusts, of course, are pretty far down the karmic uh, ladder. So, it's not a tremendous uh, thing in itself. Uh, anyway, I'll skip to the Jesus' actual baptism, which is the important point. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now. That is, let it happen now. Suffer means, in the King James Version, suffer means allow or let. For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. Then John let him do it. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went straightway, went up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. There are a number of points to be made here. For one thing, this is obviously a submission of an initiatory type. Even if the only thing that happened was the uh, outer water baptism, which I think there is good reason to believe is not the only thing that happened. This still amounts to uh, psychologically and emotionally an initiation that Jesus has submitted himself to the prophet, uh, the holiest man of the day, and has done so because it's the right thing to do. He doesn't really explain it except to say, thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. And if we understand that it is an important thing, that he was demonstrating that it's an important thing to take a master, then we can understand uh, what that sentence means. Otherwise, it doesn't really make much sense why baptizing uh, at that point should have been, why getting baptized should fulfill righteousness does not really follow. And what is described... Um, the experience that he had at his baptism is obviously a, a, an inner experience uh, of the same basic type that any initiate would have, only uh, much more so, which would be understandable. And it may seem strange to think of you know, the Christ having an inner experience when he was initiated. Um, and yet there is reason to believe that this has been written down, not up, that, that this record of his experience was strong enough so that it could not be suppressed, although John suppresses it to a great extent, and it's suppressed in other some of the other Gospels too, could not be suppressed, but at the same time uh, it's been changed in slight to a slight extent. For example, in verse 17, a lower voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. In that Gospel of the Ebionites that I just read from, and in also other versions of the Gospel of Matthew, although not so many, so that this verse is the is the uh, recurrent one, that is quoted as, This is my beloved Son, this day have I begotten thee. And that's a quote, a direct quote from the second psalm, Psalm 2, verse 7. And in the Bible that I'm looking at, even though it says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, the reference to Psalm 2, 7 is still given. 
Although there it says, this is my beloved son, this day have I begotten thee. In other words, there is a very real sense in which Jesus was born. Perhaps uh, it could be said that he was he came into his own at his initiation, that it was a significant thing and real things happened uh, as a result of it. The other thing that is not that uh, bears this out is that uh, and again you have to read somewhat between the lines although it's very clearly there is in uh, yeah in verse 12 of chapter 4 in the gospel of Matthew now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison he departed into Galilee and he began his mission that is repeated in some of the other Gospels also. In other words, Jesus did not start a public ministry until he heard that John was cast into prison. In other words, until his master's mission was stopped. And up until that time, according to the Gospel, he had apparently been in the wilderness. Because the only thing that comes in between the two references in Matthew and also in Mark is the description of his 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness where he was tempted of the devil. And we may assume also that he uh, spent that time in intense meditation and was given his final um, instructions, etc., from within. Now, oftentimes people have trouble with the idea of a guru who is less than his disciple. And it obviously doesn't happen often. But it happens in the history of Sant Nant, it has happened a number of times because there are two kinds of Sants, the Svata Sant and the Gurumuk Sant. Master Kripal Singh has described these two types in God name. And there are other references also in the writings of the saints to them. The Svata Sant, strictly speaking, comes fully born, fully made. He does not need a guru. Um, but for all that, he usually takes one. And he takes one so that people can't point to him and say, he didn't have a guru, so I don't need one, which is a human. There may not have been more than five or six Svata Sants in the history of the world, which means that this is not something that has happened more than five or six times. Nevertheless, people will point to that and say, well, he didn't have one, so why do I need one? And we find this... Uh, this tendency, of course, because, as we know, uh, many of the leaders of various religions have played down the fact that their founders had a guru. Thus, we know that the Buddha, for example, did visit two teachers uh, in between the time that he renounced the world and the time that he proclaimed enlightenment in the Eightfold Path. But the official Buddhist doctrine is that those teachers didn't help him. He went there, he got instruction from them, he followed what they said, but it did not work. He had to uh, do his own thing. That may or may not be exactly the way that it happened. I think we can assume that it may have been not that way. And similarly with Jesus, the guruship or the the um, the guru relationship of John the Baptist is played down, although not eliminated entirely, played down in favor of the forerunner and the witness. And similarly with other saints, as Sanchi has said, and this 
section from a discourse given when he was here in 77. Swamiji Maharaj made this path known to the people, and of him also it is written that he didn't have any master. But you can read in his writings, Sarbachan, how much he has praised the master. And many people say, and they know, that Swamiji got the light from Tulsi Sahib, and Tulsi Sahib was his master. When he left the body, his disciples at Agra wrote that Swamiji didn't have any master. Again, the relationship between Tulsi Sahib and Swamiji was reduced to one of, of bearing witness. Even though Tulsi Sahib had, it was well known that he had initiated both of Swamiji's parents, still, uh, the disciples who carried on the work at Agra, who eventually developed the church that I read about earlier, um, found it very difficult to say that their great savior had had a guru. So they maintained that he did not have. Baba Jamal Singh told them, don't say that my master didn't have any master because he himself has written many hymns in praise of his master. In the same way, you can read the Bani of Guru Nanak Sahib. In all his hymns, every single word sings the praise of the master. And one who has tasted rock candy, only he can describe the taste of rock candy. If he had not met the master, why has he written all this praise of the master? Because he had a master, that's why. But after him, his followers have written in many books that Guru Nanak didn't have any master, because they understand that it is bad for them to say that he did. But the reality is that Guru Nanak used to go to Kabir Sahib, and he got the knowledge of spirituality from Kabir Sahib. Because of that fact, the other gurus appreciated and respected Kabir Sahib so much that the loom on which Kabir Sahib used to work to earn his livelihood was carried by Teg Bahadur, the ninth guru of the six on his head, from Kashi, where Kabir Sahib used to live, to Patna, where it is preserved in a museum. So much appreciation and respect the other gurus had for Kabir Sahib that the Sikh people feel that if they say that Kabir Sahib is the master of Guru Nanak because he was a weaver, that means they will have to feel shame because Kabir Sahib was low caste. Regarding Kabir Sahib also, Kabir was the first saint to incarnate in this world and he came in all four ages. But he also observed the limitations of this world and he also had a master. But after him, his followers say he didn't have any master. And then he goes on to describe how Kabir Sahib took Ramananda as his master and how he liberated him. And I think that we have here a very similar situation to the relationship between Jesus and John the Baptist. He says, even though Kabir Sahib was all power, and even if he had not taken anyone as guru, still it was not going to matter much. But still he didn't break the limits and traditions, and that's why he took Ramananda as his master. That not breaking the limits and traditions is the same idea as thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. The fact was that Ramananda was liberated by Kabir Sahib. And then he goes on to explain how that happened and how Kabir got Ramananda to initiate him. And he does mention Ramananda in his writings on several occasions, and Ramananda did eventually become a saint through the uh, intervention of his disciple. So it's a, it's a, it's a fairly common thing. As I say, they're probably, I don't, aside from Buddha, Christ, Kabir, Nanak, and Swamiji, I don't know of any other Swatha saints. Uh, that is, those who apparently were not dependent on their guru in the same way as ordinary people. Most of the others 
including all the modern masters, have been Gurumukh Sants, and their career has been long, and uh, took a while to, to, to get there. However, the master also says that the real difference between the two is nil, that is, from the point of view of such kind, or from the point of view of the initiate, for that matter, there is no difference between the two. And if we study their lives even, the difference becomes strange, or less. Because even as we see, even Jesus, his baptism, his initiation, was a very important thing to him, especially if the correct reading of that verse is, This day have I begotten thee. And that immediately after that, he spent 40 days in the wilderness, in intense meditation, and that he only uh, took up his public mission after his master was silenced. In the same way, Swamiji spent 17 years in a dark back room and uh, before he took up the public mission, and so on. So that even though they, were, they came with all power, even then, um, these things are done by them, perhaps partly as the masters have indicated, to serve as examples for us and to show us that even if they work this hard, how can we expect not to? And partly because perhaps there are aspects of this that we cannot understand fully and don't know about. All right, we'll continue next week um, with other aspects. <laughs>